It's about our mistakes that make us great from what we learn from them. And we should be teaching how to lose powerfully versus don't be a loser, always be a winner. I think we're ripping each other off. My philosophy now is so many more mistakes to make and so little time left. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm J.R. Flatter, and here with our co-host, Lucas. Hello. And we are here with our distinguished guest, Don Schminka. And he is a, if you look him up on uh, his website, an amazing keynote speaker. And just to remind everybody and Don, we're here talking to leaders of complex organizations who are competing and succeeding in this 21st century global virtual labor market. So with that, Don, uh, one of the few times in your life that somebody's going to ask you, please, please brag about yourself because you have a lot to brag about. So tell us your story if you don't mind. Thank you. Um, well, I, I got into all this by accident because I was, uh, I guess when we start, if I start with the college years, I, I got involved with planetary physics and, and then I uh, left MIT and went to Hopkins when I started studying humans and eventually got attached to the executive um, MBA program. So I was around a lot of uh, young MBAs that were um, going into uh, develop their leadership in their companies. But that's when I, I got involved with uh, leadership theory failure rates. And so um, I was asked to see if they could be biological. And at the time, Oxford University gave me access to this. Um, I was just really fortunate to get connected with some really brilliant people and institutions. And they gave me access to this 700-year-old leadership training <laughs> program. And so I published it. And I was just going to use it in my classes at Hopkins in the graduate school there, but it took off. Next thing I know, I'm on CNN and, you know, the Wall Street Journal and people started asking me to speak. So that was back in the 90s, I guess. So since then, we've been uh, doing more expeditions around the world, more uh, filming and just interacting with the most brilliant people I can find to further develop um, what we early discovered in doing the autopsies of dead companies. And so that's what happened. So now I, I, I've trained about 30,000 CEOs and um, I do about 700 a year, 700 to 1,000 a year. So I'm doing this a while. I'm starting to get the hang of it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like me and my marriage. I've been married 40 years and I'm still you know, getting the hang of it. You mentioned a couple of my favorite topics, social science versus physical science. There are some similarities, but they're so, so different. I was working with a professor. So my background is in leadership development and he was measuring humans to three decimal places. And I'm like, mm, I'm not so sure about that. I'd really love to hear about this 700 year old style of leadership because I'm doing the math. Tell us a little bit more. Talking about Genghis Khan or wh where'd you get the style of leadership 700 years ago? Oh, it was um, the Japan Foundation in Oxford gave me permission to use. It was a Japanese uh, manuscript written to train samurai executives. I just, and I stumbled onto it. It wasn't anything I really planned to do, but I'd come back from an expedition in the Himalayas and this lost civilization area. And then I was 
I got ahead in an argument with my agent because I was trying to do something more tribal. This was, um, of course, back in the 90s before tribal was politically correct to say. We were developing a lot of um, the early stages of uh, observing how humans react or instinctively designed for tribal grouping behaviors. Anyway, long story short, I came back and found this manuscript and I, um, I called Oxford and, they, and you know, I told them what I was doing. They were very gracious and uh, republished this thing. And um, I was, it was fascinating because they didn't have the neurology around how the brain's designed for genetic survival. So understanding how they were able to figure out how to unhook the ego to allow honor and bravery was rare and um, not really taught in our MBA program. So I thought, well, let's teach it. Let's, uh, let's explore this further. And that's what got things started. So I'm putting myself in your shoes. You know, it's 1977, the year Star Wars came out, the year Close Encounters came out. And, you know, just eight years after the moon landing and you're going into planetary physics I'm imagining you're very excited about space travel and, and the physical science. So what was it that attracted you to kind of shift focus? And like, because it must have been, you know, something really attractive you know, from my perspective. I started studying humans and they became more fascinating to me because it's uh, such a nonlinear species and um, became my favorite species. I even have a few friends or a few are humans. And... Uh, <laughs> And so uh, and that was uh, what pulled me into the um, into the executive MBA arena and to, because leaders are trying to lead humans. And so it was a natural uh, combination to look at the research and, and look at the uh, failure rates of leadership theory and why was it failing. And I want to understand you know, scientifically, you know, we have 30,000 books published every year on leadership and business. But a lot of the best-selling books are hard to implement. You know, I mean, they're great ideas, they're great, they're great tools, they're great insights. But when I started doing autopsy research, a lot of bankrupt companies had really great leadership books and leadership training. <laughs> and so I thought, well, if we're going to grow companies faster and keep them from dying, what is it that that we're not doing? And that's and it just it just became a really uh, ongoing research project and. I ran into some, some great people that were pioneering a lot of this in various areas. So it was, uh, I love to learn and teach. So for me, it just was just a kick learning all this stuff and, and trying to share it, you know, with the world. Yeah, you mentioned a phrase I really found intriguing, unhook the ego. Can you dig into that a little bit for me? Yeah. Um, when we were looking at uh, growing companies faster, we started working with and We've been working with 100 industries they all seem to have similar patterns in something delaying their execution speed. So, you know, developing strategy is one thing, but there are a lot of failure rates in that. We found out why, and then we try to do it differently. But the execution of strategy becomes the next challenge. And we noticed organizations were wasting half their human capital. They were not adapting fast enough. And it turned out it was really more around the fact that the ego was generating dysfunctional behavior inside an organization. So speed as it was being reduced, and it was actually a bottom line impact on a company. And we all know this. It was very obvious because, you know, we have like comedy shows like, you know, The Office, uh, which I don't think is a comedy. I think it's a documentary. <laughs> 
That would make J.R. Michael Scott. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not carry this analogy before. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I knew this had to be something that was inherent in our species. And this is where I began to see what would be the neurological connection between how the samurai trained honor and bravery and bravery and how our brain has been designed for ego. And then we started applying it and we started seeing companies increase their speed and their sales. It was really weird. I mean, because at that time, I didn't really know much about business. I was just trying to understand how to get humans to perform at higher levels. But, you know, in, in two or three years, they were doubling their sales, tripling their sales. And that's when I got pulled in even more to the CEO community. But what I found was that, you know, the ego is there for a good reason, and it's to create selfishness. But now why would selfishness be a good reason? Because in genetic warfare, um, selfish animals stay alive longer than unselfish animals. And if you're alive, you get to replicate your data, which is how you commit war. It's really uh, information copying war, you know? And so the species that can copy their cellular data better win, and those that don't go extinct. So this is all helpful until you try to run a company. <laughs> Then you have all these selfish mammals showing up. And so the samurai uh, had a way of executing faster because they could unhook it. Now, the unhooking came from remembering constantly the fact that you must die. And that was like their opening statement in the first chapter of their training. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is not going to go well. <laughs> but as I got into it, I realized it wasn't really the ritual suicides that the samurai are famous for. It was really suicide of the ego. So we began teaching executive teams how to die properly. And at the time, I had been training maybe 700 CEOs a year in these CEO groups. So I had, it was a great support mechanism. And, and several said, hey, come into my team. I mean, I'm tired of all the politics. I'm tired of like it being like another episode of The Office. And so as we began applying these techniques, speed went up, execution went up, decisiveness was faster, cultures improved. And it really had to do with this death thing and then teaching that the memory that you have to die, I think, and I haven't, have not been able to fund this, but I would like to uh, fund a philanthropist who would let me go to Hopkins with a check to see if the brain scans of people that are terminally ill, but they've accepted their death and they're at peace with it versus healthy humans that are meditating on the samurai philosophy to see if the brain patterns are the same. In other words, the part that would have changed would have been the ego part, because if the body realizes I'm no longer needed, then the selfishness goes away. And this is why a lot of um, philosophies throughout history capture this. I mean, especially military, uh, you know, the, the death before battle concept, you know, to die before battle. I mean, all this starts making sense when we look at it from a leadership point of view. We look at it neurologically, and then we have all this ancient evidence and so by applying that in, in a management team produced amazing, amazing results. I love the ease with which you talk about such complex things. <laughs> <You're just Okay. laughs> relaxed. Like, okay. oh, yeah, interplanetary physics. <laughs> you know, got the ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've been, I've been trying to do this a long time, so I'm starting to get the hang of it. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of kind of like genetics propagating over time you can think about you know ideas doing the same thing and how we talk about memes nowadays would you say that did the bushido 
kind of get lost 700 years ago where it didn't propagate? Is there some sort of focus on kind of keeping those ideas alive from one organization to the next kind of? That was interesting because when I, when I started researching this, I realized the samurai are still all around us. You know, you, you look at Star Trek and war. I mean, he had the samurai thing. You look at Transformers. You look at Star Wars. You look at a lot of our movies. There's some entity that represents samurai. And, and they may not call them that, but it's clear in their mannerisms and, and even how they are costumed, you know, to represent that character. So in a sense, I, I think what they discovered didn't die. It actually became part of our media, <laughs> you know. And there's some great movies, actually, that do. I mean, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, um, and even more that, that go back 10, 20, 50 years. So I think it still lives because I think part of us as leaders want to be that. And we're struggling because we haven't, there's really no MBA program on it. This, you know, this semester, we're going to learn bravery and honor and how to suffer and sacrifice to the greater cause. It's like, what? so we don't teach the one thing that we should be teaching that's why we're trying to you know spread this out and uh hopefully some professors will pick it up because it it does work i mean we've like i said we've applied it in hundreds of industries we've grown companies many companies just faster using these techniques that they never thought of before but they're ancient it's not like something i discovered new i was just listening to our ancestors and, and, uh, and validating with modern medical science. So I've heard you mention a couple of times the transcendental nature of the human mind and our will to survive. We talk a lot about, and even in our introductions, the 20th century versus the 21st century. What do you see changing? What do you see staying the same? I see that a lot of... Um, shifts or, or fears of um, different generational aspects. But I find that we are still responding to instinctive impulses, just as we always have been. I mean, you know, like tribal grouping, coming back to that point, you know, the great leaders today, as in the ancient world, uh, knew that if you can c- construct your symbols and your rituals and your magic, well enough you can organize groups and lead them into battle or into greater companies and and a lot of that's even happening today when you look at social media you know talk about symbols emerging or or rituals emerging so i think as humans we're still operating on a two million year old structure i think the coming back to what lucas said earlier around uh, memes i mean yeah our, our, our memes sort of change our uh those things that we share in our minds uh, that appear in our language and our concepts will always um, evolve, uh, hopefully for the better. But the element driving it, I think, is the same thing that has driven memes for thousands of years. I think um, when I imagine, you know, those symbols and, and rituals and things like that, I think about, you know, a military organization that's very you know, authoritarian, and they can say, like, this is the bottom line, this is what we're going to do from the top down. And so if you're kind of trying to do that in a more organic way, I feel like there can be pushback sometimes, like, oh, I don't want to play this game, you know, I don't want to use this metaphor, it feels silly. Is there kind of a way to transition into using these sorts of symbols and things like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're happening naturally. It's... uh it doesn't take 
take much. And even in organic structures, and when we restructure a company organically, a lot of it's about symbol changing. Because, uh, I mean, the military, yes, does use symbols and rituals really well in, in aligning their patterns. Uh, but they've also changed. I mean, when, when we worked with Black Hawk Down with Matt Eversman, it was one of the most epic disasters <laughs> in modern military history. And so um, we learned a lot about the military. Plus, I was earlier had worked with the top admirals of the Pentagon and on re, um, taking what I'm teaching now uh, with businesses, but applying it to um, help improve fleet warfare readiness. And, and that was tested in the Gulf War. So it, it, it worked. But the elements, uh, the military is changing in, in that. And a lot of this came out of the errors that were made is allowing people to think in the field and adapt and learn. And so it's interesting because the top-down thing works to an extent, but at some point you have a team in the field, you have to lead and you have to adapt. And so therefore it's more around teaming. You know, I mean, you look at some of the extreme trainings like Navy SEAL training, et cetera. I mean, they're going in, they're figuring stuff out, you know, <laughs> it's not like everything. I think what I learned from Matt Eversman at Black Hawk Down, it's like you, you need to plan, but it won't work because the enemy has a vote, you know, and the enemy vote, may vote no, don't, no on your plan. So adaptation becomes the secret weapon for execution. So we saw a lot of that, but in companies, same thing, companies, the you know, if you can't adapt quick enough, and that requires the speed we talked about earlier, then there's a problem. But it's interesting when we went into companies to alter cultures, it was usually from things that were legacy, like symbols or rituals. So they were already instituted. You know, well, we had a bank that um, they had lost a quarter million dollars on these thought leader experts on culture change. And they were trying to change a hundred, this hundred-year-old paternalistic top-down culture to a customer-driven, branch-driven culture, total failure. And this guy heard me speak. I was keynoting at a banking conference, and he came. And I said, "I tell you what, give me two months, and if it doesn't work, I'll, I'll give you money back." And we used an ancient Roman technique because the Romans knew things about culture change <laughs> because they had a they had a rapid merger and acquisition campaign going on. And we had to find was there a symbol lingering. And there was, and it ended up being the assigned parking place. So by destroying the parking places, we altered the culture of the bank. And we see this a lot. Sometimes uh, like CEOs are like, well, what speech should I give? Or what poster should I hang up? But I'm like, forget any of that. What symbol can you destroy? You know, that's going to make more of an impact than any speech or poster you hang up. And it's funny, like I'll do these workshops in companies for a day. I'll go and it's like the whole executive team, sometimes the top two or three levels of management. And I'll run them through this stuff. And part of it is this tribal issue. And this one time I had a call come in from the VP of HR the next day and says, Don, you got to talk Frank down. He's got a crowbar and he's ripping shit off the walls. <laughs> it's the CEO. It's like, he's, I'm like, put him on the phone. I'm like, Frank, what happened? He's like, oh, Don, I loved you. You came up for that workshop. She was out on the table. We had now have action plans and all that. But I woke up this morning thinking, here I am in an advertising agency. And why are they resisting TikTok, Instagram? I, mean, I, keep, I keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And then I realized in my main hallway, hanging up on the walls, are all the awards we won for our Yellow Pages advertising. So I can imagine, right? He pulls up in the lot that morning, pulls the crowbar out, was drunk. Stress ripping those things off. That had more of a meaning shift than any speech he could have given. 
And so that's why I'm thinking we humans are still operating <laughs> like we have. I think we should teach it, use it productively, and the results we see are much more impactful and, and quicker. I'm afraid of the people driving away from your keynote, you know, I know smash right? down the symbols. <laughs> <laughs> I, I usually end I usually end saying, Do you have enough to wreak havoc on your innocent humans? <laughs> and they're like, Yeah, we <laughs> so it's all good from it. I find what, you, what you're saying very resonant. I'm working with some very senior leaders in our government with brand new organizations. And you probably connect a couple dots. And so they have no culture. They have no artifacts to tear off the wall. How do I start from zero and build this ego-free samurai culture? You know, I start with strategy. I had a lot of companies... Um, like I have this uh, seven-step strategic process, but the first thing is, do you have the strategy to win? And I find a lot of companies don't. They have tactics. And we go into why that's the problem and where it came from. And I was part of the problem. I was teaching analytics at, at Hopkins. But the reason there are companies that start up in an industry, and I was always wondering, all the management consultants and the thought leaders and the experts say they're not going to make it, you know, because this small startup, uh, they're not going to make it. But when the startup rises up and dominates the world, all the consultants shut up. <laughs> and I'm wondering what just happened. Like, how do you dominate the world by violating best practices? Now, that would be an interesting book, right? So um, we went to look at it. And what they were doing is th their strategic development was more around intuition, not, not analytics. So the whole point is once you get real strategy down and you now can define what does winning mean and how do we do it. Then you can craft something we stole from the Vikings. I stole all my stuff from this. I stole from the Vikings as a compelling saga. And, and really that is, can you craft that winning formula into a story of a challenge ahead where we need each other to achieve it and we're willing to suffer and sacrifice to make it happen? And the companies that can craft that powerful story now they have a place to die for the cause. You know, now they can go into, okay, what are the behaviors that have been getting in our way and what are the new ones we need? And what are the beliefs that must die that's driving those old behaviors? And what are the new ones we need to create? And in creating those new ones, then it's easier to have them participate in, hey, what are the symbols we should have for this? You know, because it all should support the compelling saga. And the Vikings did a good job in market share penetration. I mean, they... <laughs> <laughs> so. propagated yeah certainly <laughs> so going to the individual level i think about you know a person that their company is going under a lot of changes and in their individual anxiety fear discomfort of the unknown all of that is that something that you've also observed historically like what do the individuals think about these radical changes you know, when I go through history, it's amazing. There, there were changes that had, you know, monumental impact. Like, you know, something as simple as inventing the stirrup for a horse now allowed you to rise up and be more accurate with your spear or your arrows. And that was like an atomic weapon, you know. So the accuracy increased and it changed the element of warfare rapidly. But then you go forward and look at, like, uh, electricity, I mean, you hear people talk about electricity, when, and of course, most of them maybe aren't around anymore, but they were afraid. 
you know, you see, you see, a, I remember talking to my great aunt. She goes, yeah, I saw a car for the first time coming down the road and I ran back into the store to hit in the corner. No, I don't know what this thing was. So we've been impacted by change. We're doing a lot more now that have maybe um, more global impact. But I think leadership is all about change, you see. I think Cotter said it best um, when I was uh, up at Harvard. He said, um, management is about creating and maintaining order, but leadership is about destroying the order the managers created. <laughs> it's about change, right? I mean, so um, if there is no change, there's no need to lead. You know, you're already there. Just manage what you've got. So I think in the, in the element of change, then I, that it comes back to, I think, does everyone know what winning means and how they're going to win and how they're going to uh, support each other and adapt? It's all about ad- adaptation and winning that strategy and making it happen. And I think that happens in every age and it is here today. I mean, right now we're, you know, where everybody's panicking about AI. And so what is that going to change, you know, and how do we adapt to that? And the companies that will adapt faster will probably win than those that hang on to legacy strategies. You keep reminding me of the innovator's dilemma, how hard it is to change an existing culture because the people who are there rose up through the existing culture and they refused to let it die. As you look 30 years into the future, uh, I read a book by Kevin Kelly, The Inevitable, 30 Things That Are Inevitable in the Next 30 Years. What do you see 30 years from today? We could become much more efficient. The AI thing, <laughs> me and my frat brothers, we you know, were on these threads and, and these Zoom calls, and they were, I was one of the early adopters in, in, in ChatGPT, and uh, late last year, I thought, you know, everybody's arguing about humanizing AI and the dangers and all that. I said, well, why has, hasn't anyone asked AI how they would upgrade us? Or it would upgrade us. I did, you know, and it started talking to me. And um, I started, um, so it ended up being maybe 30 minutes. There was a book written, right? And, and then the human was the slowest part, me, because then I had to figure, you know, get it laid out, get it covered. So I threw it up as, as sort of just as an experiment and, and a humorous joke. It's called Unleash Your Potential. And it came up with that title. But I read the subtitle I had was uh, How Artificial Intelligence Wants to Upgrade You. And it was a fun book to write and to see. Now I've got her, people say, you need to write another one because you just did it when it was an infant. Now it's graduating college. And the past three months, like, yeah, yeah, okay. But the point is, that is, is in doing it, what I learned was it saved me so much time. For instance, I could have went down the block to the Johns Hopkins Library and done some really fun research for two or three weeks on this particular topic. Or I could have hired a graduate student to go down and do it for me. And then come back and debrief me for a day. So I, I, three weeks now becomes one day. Or I can ask ChatGPT and have it done in about 25 minutes. So it was almost like this acceler- acceleration of using it as my grad student on, on hyperdrive. And in that way, I think we have um, a very useful way to work. Because um, if we just need knowledge, we can get it now faster. But I know that some of the fears I hear were the same fears I heard. And Lucas, you're probably not old enough, but there was a time when if you brought a calculator into a classroom, everybody freaked out. 
It was like, right, JR? I mean, it was like, you can't bring that in here. You're going to be stupid. You got to learn math. You can't. And, and, and it, it was weird because we were just like, it was going to make us stupid because now we get this thing telling us how to add and subtract and, all, and do basic math. So anyway, what happens, fast forward, now if somebody's doing a math problem longhand, you, you say, why don't you use a calculator? <laughs> it's like, it's taking too long. You, and we still are learning math. We still are teaching it. We still are, you know what I mean? It's, it hasn't stopped. So I think AI may emerge like that once we get past the fear like yeah well, how come you're not using ai why are you wasting your time doing all these google searches when you can just ask and it'll come back now you got to check it out it's not like it, I mean, <laughs> many times i find that sources weren't correct or this that or the other thing but at least it condensed it down for me so i think it's a tool i don't know if i would turn over military operations to it <laughs> you know we've seen those movies but I think it's a tool. And I think we do have to, and people smarter than me, figuring out how to keep it from going rogue. But in the meantime, geez, let's, uh, let's look at our work and say, what well, can I get done faster? You know, how can I help other people or serve the customer faster if I had this kind of tool used productively? So I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's my. No, absolutely. Early does. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's the ego thing too, because it's like, you know, I feel satisfied when i do longhand division you know so just you know you're not actually going mm. to be more effective just because you feel good about <laughs> doing the work so i don't know if it, it's already been revealed that i'm a huge pop culture nerd and so you mentioned you know samurais and and their kind of proliferation and i'm thinking about you know that samurai movie became star wars with the kurosawa like inspiring George Lucas, you see these kind of memes and ideas about culture and like mythologies and fiction, you know, more so than you would if you read like a leadership book. Would you agree that like, or I guess, is there some particular fiction that you see effectively kind of spreading these ideas in the modern day? That's an interesting question. I think it's all fiction. <laughs> it's a meta narrative right? I, yeah, I mean i uh in fact i did a blog post uh, you, you pull it up hope you hope you enjoy it as i was doing some research i thought how what happened at fourth of july and then i found out that was just fiction it never really happened and i started digging into this and i told everybody look i'm publishing this after fourth of july so it doesn't ruin it for you but next i just week, read that oh, an hour ago oh, did you read it? Oh, <laughs> for reading it. yeah and uh and you can see how i did it i was just like hey i'm wondering like what is why do we put all these leaders our, our revolutionary leaders in a room we're still british we're surrounded by spies the king just captures everybody revolution's over and then as i dug into it there were brilliant people ahead of me that actually answered this question and there weren't a lot of people in the room. There were two people that signed it and it was signed. It was voted on July 2nd, not July 4th. And so some it's like Shankman and, you know, some really great researchers have gone into this and I was fascinated with what they found out. And so, so what happens at the end of this whole thing is like, okay, it didn't really happen. It took, you know, many, many years to get all the signatures. A lot of us didn't want to succeed from me. I mean, it was just a mess and so at the end of the day, we have this thing and, and we create a 4th of July. 
because they got the date wrong. And so the, the, the problem is, and that was even one of the founding fathers wrote a, wrote a note to his, his wife that said, hey, July 2nd will be the most epic day to be celebrated. And he wrote on July 3rd. And when another researcher found the mistake, he changed the date to be July 5th, so it would read July 4th. I mean, we literally altered the fiction of the whole thing. <laughs> and the whole point is like, so what? You know what I mean? All cultures create these myths to, to capture their energy, focus their spirit, and that's what it does for us. So, fine. Let's, this is our thing. Let's just participate in July 4th and have some beer and hot dogs and watch some fireworks and celebrate being an American. So, uh, so. I don't know if this is a good answer. No, totally. I love this answer. <laughs> so um, I'm going to violate our protocol. Luke's usually gets the last question, but um, it's obvious to anybody who's listening or watching that you're well-read, well-educated. How does one be, embark on a journey? Do you become a Renaissance-educated person such as yourself? Well, thank you for that compliment. I, I try to live up to it. And- don't follow me home because my kids will get different, uh, different feedback on that. I think as I've gotten older, I've, I've learned that it's only through our, in fact, it's coming out of my book, Winners and Losers, in a couple of months. It's a great question because I noticed all these entrepreneurs were writing about what they did right. But when I started analyzing them, it was what they did wrong that mattered. They all had a series of mistakes and errors and missteps, and it was from how they learned to lose powerfully that made them great entrepreneurs. So I'm going to publish things, but but, but to to get to your point, I'm thinking it's about our mistakes that make us great, you know, from what we learn from them. And we should be teaching how to lose powerfully versus don't be a loser, always be a winner. I think we're ripping each other off. And my, my philosophy now is, so many more mistakes to make and so little time left. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, I think, how you become a Renaissance thinker. Just keep learning. Just plugging away at it. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating. 